Good morning, everyone. Along with David, I want to thank everyone who made day camp possible. It was super fun. Uh, I got to have a mustache for a week, which some people enjoyed, some did not. So uh, it was really great, though. Great to see everyone just uh, gathering together to make something like that happen. Uh, it was a real joy. Uh, it's also a joy to have you here this morning. Uh, in case you don't know who I am, my name's Matt. I'm the pastor here of the church. And uh, we have been working our way through the book of Proverbs, sort of jumping around a bit this summer. So we're going to do that again this morning. Uh, we usually spend a good portion of our time uh, looking into God's Word, seeking His wisdom for, for life and for faith. So we're going to do that again. Uh, today we are in one a proverb, just one that's going to kind of branch out. Uh, the proverb is Proverbs 22, verse 6. Uh, I thought I'd just read it right on the front end and make a few comments, then pray for us, uh, and then get going. So the proverb is this, uh, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So one proverb packed with a very weighty topic, which is parenting. And the thing I want to say in the front end is that, uh, you know, parenting is one of those things as a topic that uh, is both very specific and also very general. Uh, by specific, I mean for many of us, uh, if you are a parent, it's specifically applicable for you right now. Uh, for some who are parents, thinking about parents, maybe you have been a parent, this is a very sorry, specifically uh, applicable topic. For others, though, it's not specifically for, for us in the sense that we're going to do this right now, but it's generally helpful because when you talk about parenting, you're really talking about what it means to be a human being. Like, what's the essential hope for every human being? What's the problem? And where are we trying to go? Because that's really what parenting is all about, leading our ch children, pointing them in a certain direction. And so my hope is that for wherever we are, this will be uh, a good thing for us to be instructed in terms of what God says is best for every human being, regardless of age, all over the world. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to look and see what this one proverb has to say about, about all of that. So let's pray together. God, thank you for uh, this time and this place. Thank you, God, that uh, we do have uh, answers to some of the biggest questions of life found within the Bible, found within the wisdom you've given. I pray, Lord, for us now, for everyone here, regardless of our family situation or where we are in life, I pray, God, that we would have open ears and an open heart uh, to hear from you about the wisdom of life, uh, the wisdom of faith, what it is that you are leading us to and where we can, in fact, find true life. So please be with us now. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to begin with, uh, I want to share an illustration that is not a parenting illustration. Uh, it's an illustration from world history, uh, actually medical world history, and that is to tell the story of the eradication of smallpox. You've probably heard the word smallpox, you know of it, but probably none of us have actually come into contact with it because by now it's gone. Uh, smallpox is no longer a plague on humankind, but it, it was for many, many years, the World Health Organization estimates that in the 20th century alone, uh, 400 million people died of smallpox. This is, this is even though uh, they had a vaccine for smallpox since uh, about 1796. So they've had a cure for smallpox for many years, but still for many years it was still a plague on humanity. Uh, in fact, by 1967, again, the uh, WHO estimated that still 2 million people a year were dying of smallpox. This was primarily in Africa and Asia. And so in that year, they uh, made a resolution to uh, put $2.5 million and a lot of energy and effort into eradicating smallpox. That was the plan. And the way they did it was through, obviously, vaccination, 
but also through a public campaign in those areas where smallpox existed about the, the cure itself. So in Africa and Asia, they had this kind of a campaign. They had uh, clinics, information sessions in the villages. They had, uh, you know, posters up. And the, the big idea was, look, here's what smallpox is. Uh, you, you know probably what it looks like, but we have a cure for it. And so they had teams, medical teams, that would go into different areas to do vaccinations, but also special teams, they called them smallpox detectives. And what they would do is they would like, uh, look for where there's an outbreak of the disease, and they would uh, trace back the source of that infection. So they would go from usually larger towns to smaller and smaller villages, way out into the backcountry, until they could vaccinate everyone who had the disease. They did this for 10 years. And finally, uh, in the year 1979-ish, so about 10 years, they declared that uh, smallpox had been eradicated. They found this one guy, last guy, they jabbed the needle in him and it was done. So that's what that thing at the top there, smallpox zero, uh, 1979. And uh, that's a pretty amazing achievement uh, to, to think that one of these diseases that kills so many people now is gone. But the key for us today is that this was only possible because two things were very clear to the, to the medical community. One, that this disease was in fact deadly. And secondly, that we had a cure that was effective. Because they knew the problem and the solution, the way forward was very clear. They just had to figure out how to do it. And the, the very same thing is true for us as parents. Once we figure out what the essential problem is for our children and the essential answer to it, then the way forward becomes very, very clear. We just have to figure out, with God's help, how, how to make it happen. And we see that in our verse. Let's look at it again. Proverbs 22, verse 6 Train up a child in the way he should go. And even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Notice there, there is one way that a child should go. Every child. Uh, the language there is masculine because the, the word in the Hebrew for child there is masculine. But it's applying both to little boys and little girls. It's saying there is one way for them to go which will bring life. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Just two points to our sermon. Firstly, there is a right way for children to go. And then secondly, parents need to lead the way. So we're going to look at both in turn. So number one, there is a right way for children to go. And it's not an ideology. It's not a philosophy. It's not a certain career or a certain prosperity in life. It actually has nothing to do with this life here on earth and everything to do with eternity. The right way to go is Jesus. Jesus is the right way because Jesus is the answer to the essential problem of all of humanity, which is our sin. Uh, Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, uh, oftentimes talks about sin as foolishness or folly. We see that uh, in Proverbs twenty-two fifteen, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. So the biblical idea of foolishness is not like bumbling, silly, like making people laugh, fool. Uh, it's, it's a tragic fool. It's someone who doesn't acknowledge God as the creator of the universe, but rather looks to the things that God made for hope. Uh, we see this explained really clearly in the book of Romans. Uh, Romans chapter 1, which is all about just kind of who we are as human beings. And in this case, uh, the writer Paul is talking about our essential nature as sinful, wayward human beings. And uh, here's what he says, verse, starting in verse 21. For although they, that's like all of humanity, 
Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what's being described there uh, is idolatry. That we know for, for basically all time, human beings, especially ancient cultures, had idols. They, they, they made statues of creepy crawling things, of snakes, of even other people, and they prayed to them and worshipped them and tried to, tried to get things from them. They thought it would be better for them if they were to worship these deities. And yet what we see here in Romans is that is foolishness. Foolishness because they can't really help. And lest we think that we are so far advanced, we still are idolatrous. It's just that instead of statues, we worship, we worship things like fame and money and relationships and comfort. That's the nature of our heart. That rather than going to the source of life, we, we go to the things that God made. And we think foolishly that we can be benefited. See, that's the nature of sin. And, and the reality is that every human being is born that way. Every human being has sin that is present within them. Once we realize that, it very much changes the way that we seek to help our kids. Because even though the prevailing wisdom of our day right now wouldn't use that language, when we actually meet a three-year-old, it becomes really clear, doesn't it? That there's something broken and corrupt there. Uh, You just have to... And the interesting thing when you... Like if you were to go to someone's home who has a three-year-old or four-year-old... Um, and you would see the way they behave, um, you you wouldn't be surprised to hear the parents say, you know what, I didn't actually teach them to hit anyone. (laughs) I I didn't, I promise you. I didn't teach them to scream and whine and yell when they want something. I didn't, in fact, I've been trying the whole time to teach them not to do that. That's, That's the, that brings clarity that, oh yeah, that was there from the beginning. That is the essential nature of humanity, that we assume that we are in charge of the universe and that if people aren't doing what we want, we hit them or scream at them until they do what we want. We just get, you know, a little more chill about it later on, but it's still there. <laughs> so no, once we know that, it very much helps us to know the, the real issue of the problem. And it's actually worse than we think because, because even those outside of the church would look at that behavior and say, that's not good. But what we know, according to scripture, is that not only is that not good, but it's leading to something worse. That if we are not, if we are not led away from that essential sin, uh, first of all, we're going to grow farther away from God, but ultimately there will be consequences for us in eternity if we still have that sin present in our hearts. So, sin is the essential problem, which means that we need someone who can deal with our sin, and that leads us to Jesus. For the Bible says really clearly that Jesus is the answer to all sin because he came, he lived the life, the perfect life we couldn't live, and then he went to the cross to take the penalty of sin, death. Death itself, he took on himself so that we would be free from it. In fact, this is the essential hopefulness of the gospel. If you're wondering, what is the church all about? What is Christianity all about? It's that. It's that there is ultimate hope and life in Jesus because he answers the problem of sin. Jesus says this about himself in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the question when it comes to parenting is, is okay, then what is our job? Well, our job is to provide the essential answer to our kids for their problem in life. 
That we're not just looking to raise them for a good life here on this earth. We're looking to raise them for all of eternity. J.C. Ryle is a British uh, pastor. Uh, I quoted him last week, actually. He's very quotable, uh, very concise and clear. Here's what he says about parenting. He says, first then, if you would train your children rightly, train them in the way they should go and not in the way they would. Remember, children are born with a decided bias towards evil, and therefore, if you let them choose for themselves, they are certain to choose wrong. If you cannot make up your mind on this first principle of Christian training, it is useless for you to go any further. What he means there is, unless you have clarity on this, the way forward will not really be clear. You'll go in the wrong direction. That's exactly uh, what we saw with the smallpox thing. Because there was clarity about the problem and the solution, they knew the way forward. If we as parents, Christian parents, aren't clear about the importance of the gospel, we will make, we'll make a misstep lead our children in a wrong direction. So, that's the first question for you if you are paired here today. Is this clear for you? Is there a conviction on your heart, a clarity in your mind, that there is one essential thing that my child needs and his name is Jesus? Put another way, if your child ended up being prosperous in everything that the world has to offer, by that I mean good career, good marriage, uh, you know, Good family living in a, you know, a great place somewhere here in the Tri Cities, right? The <laughs> paradise of the Greater Vancouver region. Um, if all of that were true, but they didn't have faith, would you, would you be satisfied? Would you be happy for them? Or flip side, if if your if your thirty year old is still living in your basement, if they have no job, if they're if they're struggling in so many areas, but they have faith. Could you still find satisfaction in that? Like, like, what is it that would truly bring you joy for your child? You need to figure that out before you take your next step. There is one way, the Bible says, and his name is Jesus. Not just for kids, but for each one of us. Because it leads us to genuine life, not just here on this earth, not just for 70, 80 years, but for all of eternity. So if that's the case, then, it becomes clear what we are to do as parents. Okay, our job, the way God's designed family and church, but family is that we would be there to evangelize our kids, to help them to see the right way forward from a young age so that they would not go down a whole bunch of dead-end cul-de-sacs which end in greater and greater sin, greater and greater distance from the Lord. So number one, there's a right way to go. We're turning the corner. Two, parents need to lead the way. You can't just point the way, you need to lead the way. We need to be the ones who live out our faith in such a way, articulate the gospel in such a way that our kids will follow us all the ways of their, all the days of their life. And we actually get this uh, in the proverb itself, that beginning phrase where it says, train up a child. Uh, in the Hebrew, it, it has a connotation with a practice that mothers would use to get their children to nurse well. Sometimes babies don't want their mother's milk. And so what they would do is they would take dates and mush them up, really sweet date mixture, and rub it on their lips, and the, and the babies would start to, mm, mm, they would start to suck, right? It'd be great. And then they would receive their mother's milk. That's the same idea here, that, that we would be enticing them to that which is life. That which in their foolishness, they don't, they don't want right away. Kids naturally want to pursue more and more of their own way. We all do. But here the idea is that we would entice them, compel them, lead them in the right way. The challenge though, if you know your, if you know your Bible a little bit, you'll probably realize there's a bit of tension here. 
Because what the Bible says really clearly is that it's, it's God who saves. God is the one who takes us from death to life, from a lack of faith to faith. We see this here in Ephesians, just to make it really clear. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. So salvation, the, the, the step from, from not believing to believing to seeing that I need Jesus, that is God's power. God does that. Which then leaves us as parents wondering, okay, so, so what's, my, what's my job? If I can't actually save my child, what am I supposed to do? Well, the answer is that a faithful parent is to lead the way by sharing gospel truth and by preparing the hearts of their children for faith. And the picture that I found is helpful for this is is that faithful parenting is really about building a bonfire in the hearts of each child. See, uh, there's sometimes this terminology we use about having a faith that that burns brightly, right? A faith that you're on fire for Jesus, on fire for the Lord. And so if you take that analogy and break it down, we must acknowledge that the spark of the fire of faith is, is God. God does that. That the work of the Spirit of God awakens us and we see our need for Jesus. That is the beginning of faith. So what are we to do? We don't have the spark, but we as parents can stack kindling. We can prepare the fire. You know you gotta prepare a fire. You gotta take good dry wood, stack it in like a teepee thing or a log cabin, whatever your you know, way you wanna go. You add, you add the fuel, and then when the spark comes, it burns brightly. That is the role of a parent. The problem is that in many Christian homes, there is not good dry wood. There's very green wood, very damp wood. Wood that God can still bring to light, but burns slowly. It smolders. It's been dampened by a hollowness in terms of the things of faith by a lack of intentionality, by hypocrisy, perhaps, in the home. See, what we want is to know in our minds as parents that we've been faithful in in bringing gospel truths to our children, in living a life that matches up with those truths, and in prayer, praying, Lord, I pray they would come to genuinely believe. That's when the fire burns brightly. So, with the remaining time, I want to give us four good pieces of wood. Four four things that when they're present in our home, prepare our children well for faith or fuel the fires of faith that they already have. Okay, four practical things on how to do this well. Number one, don't assume that they believe. There's sometimes the idea in the Christian faith that the best thing to do for kids is to talk to them from a young age as if they believe, as if they believe, as if they're a Christian. The, The thinking is, if we just treat them as if they believe, then they will start to act like they believe. They'll begin to speak like they believe. They'll live their lives as if they believe. The problem, of course, is that no one has actually stopped to ask them, look, do you really believe this? Do you really believe what's going on at church and what you read in the Bible, or is it just what your parents believe? Do you actually think that Jesus died for your sins, or is this just something you've been told? Is it something that you're doing because everyone around you is doing it? See, the danger is that there will be teenagers who have never really been challenged in their faith. It's never become their own. The reason that we, the reason that we would push our kids or talk to them as if they already have faith when they might not, I think is because we just really want it for them. Is that we think, man, as soon as, as, soon as we can pray that prayer, whew, 
then it's done, right? They pray the prayer, the sinner's prayer. They say yes to Jesus. Done. God, you take the rest. I've done my job. Whether they're three, two and a half, whatever it is, they've said yes. So it's all good. The problem is that very often they, they haven't really come to the place of understanding. And just like you would not treat someone, like if you're new here with us, if you're not a believer, it would be really weird if, if when you came in, we would start to talk to you as if you're a believer, if you're a Christian. It would make much more sense for us to say, hey, here's what we believe. And allow some time for question and answer. And, and our prayer would be that you would come to see this is the truth. We want to look for evidence, genuine evidence of spiritual interest and spiritual life in the lives of our children. So I'll give you one example of how this played out in one instance in our home. Uh, one of our boys was, I think, about six years old, and we had been sharing the gospel, trying to live the gospel, uh, you know, not just praying at meals, but, but really articulating the things of faith in such a way that we would, we would want all of our kids to know and believe. And there's one evening, I mean, he had shown some interest. He'd been praying, he'd been talking. It wasn't really clear to us, though, was he just doing this because everyone else was doing this or because he really believed? And so one evening, it was very late. It was like came home from something and it was one of those nights where you're like, just get into bed, uh, don't brush your teeth, don't do anything, don't even take off your clothes. Just get into bed. We all need to go to sleep. So I was putting everyone to bed and uh, this, this Glezo's boy said, uh, hey, dad, yeah, hey, dad, um, I want to become a Christian. I said, that is, that is great. That's fantastic. You know, it's really late, though. <laughs> and, uh, and so I think maybe tomorrow would be a great day because I want to talk to you about it. I want to talk some more. And so we could just, is that good? We'll just wait till tomorrow. Okay, Dad. So we prayed for him, went to bed, uh, or brushed my teeth. was sitting in bed with Dawn. And, uh, and there's a knock at the door. And this, this same Glenn's boy came in, and uh, he was like, uh, Dad, I think I really want to become a Christian. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I feel horrible. Okay. Okay. I, yeah, let's, let's sit. It doesn't matter what time it is. Let's sit down. Let's talk. Because what we saw then was evidence of it he really wanted for himself was the sense that we got. And we didn't just pray like right then, right there, kind of quick. We said, well, let's, let me ask you, why do you want to become a Christian? Well, because I believe in Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? Well, he's, uh, he's God's son. That's right. What did, what did Jesus do for you? He died on the cross. That's right, he did. Well, like, why did he have to die? That seems really extreme. Well, because uh, of sin. Yeah, t- tell me more. Well, because, like, I sin and the con- consequence, I don't think he used that word, of sin is death. But Jesus, he died for me. Yeah, you're, you're right. So we, we talked about it. He knew the gospel. We, we made sure that he wasn't just saying yes to something he didn't even understand. And we prayed together. We celebrated the new life that God was bringing in him. And from that moment on, we, we continued to question his faith. Not like a cross-examiner in a courtroom, but in a, hey, tell me about your faith. What do you think about this? Do you really believe that? So that the faith is tested and that it's allowed to grow. See, if, if we truly believe that the spark of faith comes from God, then we don't have to rush things. It's not like, it's not like our, our kids can miss it. It's by his power that it happens. Our job is to be faithful in preparing the way, in providing the wood, the understanding, so that when that fire comes, it can burn brightly. So that's the first thing, really the main, most important thing, leading your child to faith in a way that we see genuine spiritual interest and growth. The second thing uh, is this. We need to fill our homes with grace. See, the relational, emotional climate of our homes is very important because it's not just what we teach, but how we teach it. 
and it's also how we relate to each other. So the question would be, what kind of a home do you have? It is, a, is it a soft home or a hard home? Is it an environment where there's, there's tension, there, there's a lot of judgment, or is it, is it an environment of grace? Like if you are married and you, know, you have husband and wife in the home, mom and dad, how do they see you talk to each other? Are you short with each other? Do you belittle each other? Are you, are you hard with each other? How, how do you speak with your kids? Especially when they are uh, disobedient or disrespectful. Are you, are you hard on them? Are you harsh with them? Do you allow your displeasure to linger in the home so they really know that you didn't like what they did? Or, or are you quick to forgive? Are you quick to show grace? See, the reason this is a big deal is because one of the most harmful things for a young person's faith is to have a huge disconnect between all of the claims of Christianity, God is love, he brings newness of life, forgiveness, softness, and then the experience they have is just the opposite. Where the people who say they follow Jesus are hard, unforgiving. When that happens, what happens in the heart of a child is for them to say, man, I don't think I really want that. Like, why would I want to follow Jesus if, if that's what it looks like? The way that we entice and lead our children to follow the Lord is to actually allow the grace of God to, to change us, to soften us, to shape us so that it's, it's so compelling. So they see the way that, that God changes. And, and the best way to do that is to show them forgiveness and grace. So when they sin, we are quick to forgive. We're quick to remind them, yes, you're, you're forgiven in Christ. You're forgiven by me. And most importantly, we need to ask for forgiveness. This isn't just true of parenting. This is the people in our lives. That when we sin, we don't pretend that we didn't. We don't act like because we're parents, we're above all that. We look for those opportunities where we are too harsh with our words. And this is where it most often happens with me. When I'm in the middle of getting a thousand things done and, and one of my boys says something or does something they shouldn't and I just lash out at them, I need to be able to go and say, look, you didn't do something that was good, but I sinned against you. I, I need you to forgive me, please. I shouldn't have talked to you that way. I shouldn't have. That's not the right way for a dad or anyone to talk. And it's in those moments when, when the grace of God is more fully revealed. That, oh, this is, this is the Christian life. One where we are constantly repenting, constantly seeing our sin more clearly, asking for forgiveness from God and the people in our lives. That, in fact, faith does shape us, and change us. So we need homes that are filled with grace. But the third thing is, we also need homes that are, are disciplined. We need to discipline the hearts of our kids. And these seem like opposites, but they're actually complementary. Because we don't just want, we need grace, but the discipline is an opportunity to confront our children in their sin. It's not, it's not just an opportunity to have a home that is quiet, which is a blessed thing, but it's really an opportunity to do gospel work. That's the beauty of discipline. When you look at it from the biblical point of view, it is an opportunity to confront children in their sins so that they see the reality of the consequences of sin. Look again at Proverbs twenty-two fifteen. It says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far away. 
See, the, the issue here for discipline is that we are able to identify foolishness, identify sin. Not, hear me, not silliness. Like not just kids being kids. Not kids knocking over you know, a glass of milk or breaking something or just doing something that ends in you know, injury. Th- those things happen because they're young and, and they make mistakes. But we're really looking for is that tendency of heart which goes away from God and, and seeks to exalt themselves. This is what's sin for all of us. Lying, cheating, unkindness towards others, a lack of love, putting ourselves first, disrespect towards parents. All of these things are not just you know, silliness that we can just laugh off. They're, they're sin. And it's an opportunity for us to put a spotlight on it and say, look, look, see this thing here? This is going to destroy you. This is right now having a ill effects in the home, but that's not my greatest concern. My greatest concern is that if you keep doing this and you don't have any hope in Jesus, it's going to end in greater consequence. So that's what discipline is all about. Connecting the dots between sinful behavior and ultimate consequence. And that's why when you look at the teaching around it biblically, you'll see that there's always discipline means a consequence. You see there in verse 15, the rod of discipline will drive it far away. And so the question always for parents, one of the biggest questions I always get, man, well, how do you, what does it mean to do that? Like, how, how can you actually discipline in such a way that it has an effect on their heart and they actually change? Like, they don't do that annoying thing anymore. And the answer is, well, well let's look and see what discipline is. Is it a rod? Like a physical rod? No. No, it's a principle of the rod. This principle is explained uh, very clearly in Hebrews 12, verse 11. It says this. This is uh, the writer speaking about God's discipline for us and uh, the way that we discipline our kids. It says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see the principle there. Real discipline has to hurt in some way. We know this instinctively. If we get a speeding ticket and the speeding ticket is for $10, we know that that's not going to have a huge effect on our heart. We're going to speed some more. But if we get a speeding ticket for like $300, $400, we would go home and probably say something like, oh, man, I got the speeding ticket. Oh, it hurt. It hurt. It doesn't mean that the cop punched you. It means, it means that, that you felt the effects. There was a cost involved to the point that it made you think twice before doing that bad behavior again. That is the essence of true and effective discipline. You see it there. There needs to be some measure of pain, some measure of hurt. Now, it's not always physical pain. These days, um, we can bring our children to tears by taking away screens, right? Taking away Xbox. That, that, is, that is a huge cost for them. Oh, right? That's a good thing. I always look for those things that leverage, right? That I can... Make them cry. It's a good thing. So, um, so the challenge, though, is when they're young, how do you have that same effect on their heart? How do you, with a two-year-old, three-year-old, four-year-old, uh, give a consequence to such an effect that they will feel that? And most of the time, the best way is through a spank on the bum, where they feel the immediacy of the physical pain, not for long-term, but for just that moment. And what you're doing there is helping them to see, look, that thing that you did is wrong, and there are consequences when you do wrong. This is life-giving for them. 
This is loving for them. You see it there in Hebrews. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That really is what we want our kids to see, to make the connection. That if you do not deal with your sin, if you do not repent, bring it before the cross, that eventually there will be eternal consequences. The fact that you're getting a consequence right, right now is my love for you. And that's the kind of language that you can use. Gospel language, language of love. In fact, I say this very often. If I did not love you, I would not discipline you. It's way too much work. It's a lot of energy and effort on my part. Instead, what I would do is I would just give you more screens. When you get home, watch whatever you want. Uh, I'll bribe you just to make you do what I want. And then when you're done in life, you can go and figure out yourself. But I would have had a much easier task. That's a lack of love. Real love means means highlighting those things which will lead to their destruction and giving a consequence so that they can make the connection. So you notice in all of this, it really is not about us being able to have a quiet afternoon. I know we want that as parents. We do deserve it. We should have it. And, and it will happen in 20 years. But for now, <laughs> for now, it's really not, not really about that. It's really for their good wanting to train them and lead them and reveal to them those things which are not helpful. And the good thing about this is that, that if done rightly in time, notice it's not immediately, it's later, so it could take years, our children will begin to feel the weight of sin. In fact, we've had some really good conversations in our home about those boys who've said, Dad, I, I just feel like I can't not sin. Like I can't do it. I can't stop sinning. I don't know. I keep getting disciplined. And my answer there is, Man, I know that's, I feel that same way too. All of us do. That's okay. We don't have to be perfect. We need to trust in the one who is perfect for us. See, the gospel comes through loud and clear when you're in a home where there's grace and there is discipline. Those two pieces of wood, so important. The fourth piece of wood, though, is one that um, you might not think of immediately. Now, now, there's lots of different pieces of wood. These are just four key ones. There's others. But this one, I think, is often neglected, and that is that we should prepare our children for suffering. The reason I mention that is that if we are to lead them in the way of Jesus, we're leading them in the way of the cross, and that is a way of suffering. In fact, Jesus himself says, right, right at the, from his ministry, to those who want to follow him, he says this uh, in Luke 9, 23, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. This is what he's telling everyone there will be a cost to following me. A cost because there will be persecution, because you'll be called to give up things. A cost because many people will, will come against you and you will, you'll have a decision to make. Am I going to keep following Jesus or am I going to take the easier, more comfortable way? The problem though is if we don't talk about these things ahead of time, then we are not preparing our children for those moments in life where their faith is tested. They will expect a smooth, kind of open road of faith with all the blessings of God, experiencing all the prosperity that Jesus promises, which is true, and forget not realizing that there will be bumpy roads along the way. See, if we don't prepare our children for suffering, then when it happens, they will have the mistaken idea that God has forgotten them or that he doesn't exist. But when we not only teach them about suffering, like go through the Bible and say, hey, did you notice that the one you're following suffered greatly for you and that everyone else to build the church also suffered greatly? 
And also that God promises that he's going to shape your character through adversity. Not only teaching them that, but also living it. Like when adversity comes our way, how, how do we react? Do we, do we freak out? Do we, do we lose it when there's medical crisis, financial crisis? When there's um, plans that fall through? How do we respond? Do we, do we show them frustration, anxiety, worry? Or are we able to take steps of faith down the road, trusting in Christ? See, when we lead this way, repenting of sin, acknowledging the difficulty of the road, then our children will be well prepared for the world where, where they're outside of the bubble. I mean, bubbles are good for a certain amount of time, but to step outside and actually make an impact for the kingdom of God is going to require that they understand who they are, that their faith is theirs, and that they expect adversity. I wanted to end with one particular kind of suffering that parents, uh, that parents feel. And that is the suffering of, of having done this, of wanting all this for your kids, but then they, they, they go another way. See, this proverb is one of those proverbs where people look to it and, and the question always is like, what, what exactly is it saying? Because look at the last bit. So start off a child in the way they should go even when they are old or he or she is old, they will not turn from it. And so the question always is like, is this, is this a guarantee? Because if it's a guarantee that I don't understand what's happened in my own home. And so what we need to understand in terms of Proverbs is that Proverbs are proverbially true, not absolutely true. There, there's a universal truth here, which is that for every child, in every country, every culture, there is one right way. And his name is Jesus. This is the way that everyone should go, but, but it is not a guarantee that every single person will go that way simply because there's been faithful parenting. This is important because for many parents, they, they look back, we look back, probably all of us, and wish we'd done things differently. But right now, you may be in a situation where your child has said, I, I don't want that. Like, I, I don't believe that. I don't want to come to church anymore. I'm 18 I'm an adult, I can do what I want. I don't want to read the Bible. That's your faith, that's great for you, but it's not for me. And the question then is, what, what do you do as a parent? And the answer is, you, you suffer faithfully. You suffer with the reality that at that moment, there's, there's little confidence that your child has peace with God. But you have comfort in the fact that it was never your parenting that ultimately would save your child. It was always God's spark. God's power. And that hope has not gone away. Even, even if your child has been years away from the church, even if they still to this day say they want no, nothing to do with it, you still have the opportunity to lead them to Jesus by suffering faithfully. And you do that through prayer, through living a faithful life yourself, and through trusting that even the, the greenest, dampest wood can still be set ablaze by the power of God. Everyone, there's hope for every single person. No matter how old your children are, no matter who is in your life that have just said, I want nothing to do with this, this hope that you have, your role may be at that point to, to labor in prayer, to seek out God and say, God, I just I trust you for my, my child's faith and their heart and to believe that his power is unmatched and that his will is for all those who call the name of Jesus to be saved.
Our proverb, once again, is start off a child in the way they should go, and even when they are old, they will not turn from it. My prayer for us as a church, my prayer for the families here, is that we would take this to heart. That for those of us who have the opportunity now to parent, to lead the way that that God would give us strength and wisdom. And my prayer is also going to be for those of us who are not parents, not really part of a family unit in this way, but that we would see also this way forward for children is the same for all of us. And that all of us need the same answer. So let's pray together. Lord God, I... I thank you for this opportunity to think deeply about your wisdom for for childhood, for parenting. Lord, it's very clear that there is one way forward for all of humanity. It's very clear in scripture that there are a lot of other good, lesser goals, good things to do. We should get educated. We should pursue excellence in academics and careers. So many other good things, Lord, but one ultimate thing is there. Jesus, you are that ultimate thing because through you we have peace with God. We have lasting joy, lasting peace. And God, I pray that every parent here would feel that, not the burden of that, Lord, but the the joy of that, that they have an opportunity to, to help their children understand the very thing that will bring them life, not just for now, not just for this life, but for forever. And so God, I pray you'd bring them wisdom. Please, Lord, in those in those dark, heavy days when it just feels like nothing is changing, when there's disobedience, when there's sin in the home, turmoil, I just pray, Lord, you'd bring life, encouragement, that this is a long-term game. This is not a sprint. And Lord, in your good timing, as you see fit, you will awaken those. You will, you will bring the spark to all that kindling that has been set so that you will be honored and glorified with that faith. And so God, please, bring encouragement and strength. And I pray, Lord, for each one here, Lord, that each one of us would, would have clarity about the essential problem of our life and the essential answer that we find in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would build and shape your people and indeed our community so that that essential truth and answer would be very, very clear. Thank you, God, for this proverb. Thank you, Jesus, for the hope you bring. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.